The date was the 11th of July 1995 and the place was Srebrenica in former Yugoslavia. On that date, 8,000 Bosnian men and boys were massacred, the worst mass killing since the Second World War. When one UN officer saw what had happened, he uttered these words, I hope whoever is responsible for this will burn in the hottest corner of hell. The language sounds shocking but it had been provoked by something nauseatingly and appallingly shocking. But while the language may be shocking, the sentiment which was expressed was not. Because faced with appalling human evil, faced with the depths of human depravity, that UN officer was really expressing a heart cry for ultimate justice. The kind of justice which God alone can meet out. For God alone knows all the facts. God alone is utterly impartial. And only God is able to carry through his purposes unhindered by man. Moreover, it was not only a cry for ultimate justice, it was expressing the belief that human behaviour has ultimate moral significance. So, however that UN officer expressed things, the sentiment behind those words was surely a sentiment which expresses biblical truth. Because the message of the Bible is that there is to be a day of judgment. God has set a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has appointed. That tells us something about God. It also tells us something about ourselves. That we are morally responsible beings and that we are people whose lives have ultimate and eternal significance. And at that point, of course, the message of the Bible comes into head-on collision with the worldview which is held by so many of our contemporaries. Let me read you some words of Richard Dawkins. This is a pastiche taken from a number of his writings. But this is what he says. There is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for being. Wind back some decades to another well-known, not atheist, but agnostic, Bertrand Russell. And he uttered these words. All the labours of the ages... All the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation be securely, safely built. Bleak words, aren't they? But they express something of the context in which Christians are to serve the Lord and to bear witness to a needy world. This is the Lloyd-Jones Memorial Lecture. And it would be false to the memory 
of the late Dr. Lloyd-Jones, if tonight we simply engaged in abstract theological reasoning concerning the last things. If there was one thing about which Lloyd-Jones was insistent, it was this, that doctrine must affect life, and that life must be informed by doctrine, and that the gospel that we are to make known to the world around us is profoundly doctrinal. This was something he frequently emphasised. The idea that Christians need theology, but when we proclaim the gospel, it's just a, a milk and water message. No. There's profound doctrine. And we need to know how the Bible's message of the future is to be related to the people of our day and age. And this is why the title, Noah and the Future, is so helpful. Let me explain Although superficially considered, our days are obviously very different from Noah's. They didn't have computers. They didn't have apps on their mobile phone. They didn't have cars. They didn't have airplanes. Superficially, we are so different. And yet, fundamentally, as I want to try to show tonight, nothing really has changed. And the Apostle Peter, in particular, follows the teaching of the Lord Jesus in that passage which was read to us earlier where our Lord makes reference to the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And Peter draws lessons for his readers in their day from God's dealings with Noah and the people of his day. If you've got your Bible, you'll find it helpful to turn to 2 Peter and chapters 2 and 3, because I've been particularly asked in particular to deal with aspects of the teaching found in those two chapters. And as you read those two chapters, it becomes clear that Peter had really uh, chopped the timeline of the world into three stages. First, the ancient world before the flood, chapter 2 and verse 5. If he, that is God, did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. So there is the time from Adam up until the time of the flood, that is the ancient world, the antediluvian period. Then there's the time after the flood, the post-Diluvian period, and it's quite clear from these chapters that Peter believed that he was in that age, and in fact that age will continue right until the end. And then in chapter 3 and verse 13, he speaks about the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Well, that means we are living in the same age as that of Peter's readers. And therefore the lessons which Peter draws for them, are tremendously relevant and pertinent to you and me as we seek to serve the Lord in 2013. Now, one of the things that's mentioned in chapter 3 is the delay. The delay with respect to the coming of the Lord. There's going to be a bit of delay in this message tonight. Because before we get to the last things, I want us to look at some other things. But uh, there is method in this, and we are moving towards... Uh, The last things, Noah, and the last things, Noah and the future. But I want us to look at a number of things, first of all, which Peter draws out. And they really set the scene for what he has to say concerning Noah and the future. I've really got three main things to say tonight. Here is the first. Man doesn't change. By man, I mean men and women. Humanity doesn't change. What was it that triggered that cataclysmic judgment of the flood. 
well, those of you who were here this morning will know it was the violence that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 and 13. That the whole earth was filled with violence. The Lord was grieved that he had made man because of the violence. Our brother Stephen was speaking about the killing that was going on. Well, look at the world tonight. Look at what's going on in different parts of the world. We've not really come on, have we, since, those, since that day and age? Think of the massacre in Srebrenica. Think of the 20th century, that century of tremendous advance. And think of the numbers of people who were slaughtered in the two world wars. A little girl was writing a history uh, uh, essay. And she spoke about um, the 11th hour of the 11th day, uh, 1918. And uh, since we have a day of peace ever since then. And she didn't realise quite what she was saying. We have this one day of peace, as it were. We remember. We remember the armistice. But think of the conflict that has been in the world. Think of the killing. Think of the violence. Nothing has changed. Human nature may have advanced intellectually, may have advanced technologically and scientifically, but morally and spiritually, men and women here in Finchley in 2013 are no different from the people of Noah's day and age. That, of course, has implications for evangelism, doesn't it? What were people concerned about in Noah's day? Well, listen to the Lord Jesus. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. What are people interested in tonight? Have you been struck by the number of food programs there are? on the TV. There are endless, endless programs. Now, we are to enjoy our food, we are to eat to the glory of God. But isn't there almost an obsession with this in our day and age? Eating, drinking, marrying, we heard a lot about that this morning, that God wants people to marry, but the point here is that their horizons went no further than this. They were just living for the here and now, they were just living for themselves and God was not in their thoughts. That's exactly the same. What's driving the world tonight? Money, pleasure, food, drink. It was true in our Lord's day. Don't say, what shall we eat, what shall we drink? For after these things, the pagans run, said our Lord. Or again, just think of what happened immediately after the flood. And this, well, I'll make a confession pulpit isn't a confessional, but uh, I had a shock a few weeks ago when uh, Gary first contacted me, uh, asking me to give this lecture. I warmed to the subject and said, yes, you know, sometimes you don't realize what you're letting yourself in for. And uh, many years ago, I preached on, on a particular incident in the life of Noah, which I'll refer to in a few moments. And I thought, yes, now that's what I'm going to speak on. And about three weeks ago, I read again the brief which I'd been given and to my horror, I discovered that it was quite different from what I thought I was going to be speaking on. Hence the sweat I've been in today. But I'm thinking really of what happened immediately after the flood. A cleansed world. We heard this morning or this afternoon that the, the world was decreated. God created the world. He separated the, the dry land from the water. But then at the time of the flood, it, 
the world goes back into a kind of primeval chaos. But the world is being cleansed. And now there's a new world order. All these violent people, all these godless people, they've been wiped out. And now here are the covenant community of God's people, Noah and his family. And what's the first thing? After Noah offers his sacrifice to the Lord, the first mention of a burnt offering, what's the next thing we read about Noah? Well, he plants a vineyard, doesn't he? And what does he do? Well, he takes the fruit of those vines, he turns them into wine, he drinks the wine and he gets drunk, and when he's drunk, he's naked. And the echoes of Genesis chapter 3 are unmistakable. The woman took of the fruit of the tree and ate. Noah takes of the fruit of the vine and drinks. The man and the woman are naked and become aware of profound shame. Noah is lying naked in his tent. The Lord has to clothe Adam and Eve and two of Noah's sons walk backwards, Japheth and Shem, and clothe their father. What is the message that's coming through there? The message that's coming through there is this. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Even after the cataclysm of the flood, even one of the people of God, even this great man of God, yet there's something wrong even within him. And we read in chapter 8 and verse 21 that the Lord says that he'll, he'll never again Destroy the earth with a flood. And interestingly, I think that's, that verse throws light upon the universal nature of the flood. Because there are localized floods, aren't there? There are parts of the world where seed time and harvest fail. But God is speaking now globally. And he says, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from Childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Here are the words even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. But there's been this flood, nothing is going to change. I think it's worth pausing there and saying, therefore, we should never believe anyone who says that they can bring in a new world order. This perhaps has been the, the great disillusionment of the 20th century, hasn't it? The League of Nations. Then the United Nations. Thank God. Thank God for uh, the conflicts which the UN may have stopped. But if we believe that the UN can bring in a new world order... The fall of communism, that would bring in a new world order. And as communism fell, up came the rise of nationalism and ethnic cleansing. We've had democracy exported to different parts of the world and look at what's happening. The idea that politicians can bring in a new world order, no. Because man, humanity, hasn't changed. And then look at the days in which Peter was living. He's dealing with false teachers, chapter 2 and verse 1, but there were also false prophets among the people. He's looking back into the Old Testament. Just as there will be false teachers among you. He speaks of these false teachers and their destructive teachings in this second chapter. Now, 
what, what was the real nature of their teaching? Well, one of the things was this. They felt that the delay in the coming of the Lord, well, it was tantamount to a denial of his coming. Chapter 3 and verse 4. They, that is these scoffers, will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. He's not going to come. There's not going to be a judgment. And that in turn, that denial of future judgment, that denial of human accountability, fueled the immoral lifestyle which these false teachers were advocating. You've got it in chapter 2 and uh, verse 13. Uh, to the end of the chapter, he keeps referring to this. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. Their blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. They've infiltrated the church, you see. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed and accursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. And so he goes on about this a moral lifestyle which they were advocating, which was fueled by their denial of ultimate future judgment. Isn't that the world that we are living in tonight? The average person regards belief in future judgment as really a joke in very bad, very poor taste. And hedonism is the lifestyle that results from that. Personal choice. Personal pleasure, that's the creed of many of our contemporaries. That's the context in which we have to minister and serve the Lord. So there's nothing new under the sun. And we mustn't think that the amoral hedonism that's rampant around us is the result of the enlightened scientific thinking of the likes of Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. Peter pinpoints the real issue. Chapter 3 and verse 5. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. There was a deliberate forgetting or suppressing of the truth that God had created the universe. It seems to me that there are echoes there of Romans chapter 1 where Paul writes of those who suppress the truth. They know the truth, but they suppress it. We had reference earlier today to Cornelius Van Til and oh, what, what a lot he's made of those verses in Romans 1. Every unbelieving individual on the face of the earth has this sense of God which is being suppressed and the lid is being put upon it. Now that's the worldview which Peter challenges. And he challenges it by going back. He goes back to Noah, the life and times of Noah. He looks at Noah as a type of the people of God in Peter's day and what God can do for them. He looks at Noah's contemporaries as a type of the unbelievers in Peter's day. And he looks at the flood as a type of the final judgment. So Peter looks to the past to explain the future so that God's people might live properly in the present. Let me just underline that because it's key to what's going on in these two chapters. Peter looks to the past to explain the future so that God's people might live aright in the present. 
There was once uh, an Old Testament lecturer who made the statement that the Hebrew people walked into the future backwards. That was a profound observation. As they were going into the future, they were looking at the past, God's past dealings. What was true of Old Testament prophets was equally true of New Testament apostles. So what does Peter say? Well, having looked at the fact that humanity doesn't change, he tells us God doesn't change. He knows how to rescue and keep his people for salvation. That's what he's really saying in this long section from verse 4 of chapter 2 down to verse 10. In verse 5 he says, If God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, then jump a number of verses to verse 9, If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from trials. Noah was in a very small minority, wasn't he? Eight people. They must have felt very marginalised. Do you ever feel you belong to a marginalised group of people? The media is so often hostile to the Christian faith. The media, the people they have who speak about Christianity, rarely do you get someone really proclaiming the true biblical message. Here in the West, we're in a small minority and we're increasingly being marginalised. But be that as it may, the Lord kept him faithful. Through all those long years, surrounded by ungodly people, the Lord preserved Noah. Think of Christians tonight living in lands where Islam is dominant. How marginalized they must feel. How insignificant they must feel. How easy it must be for them to think, well, do we have the truth? Can all these people be wrong? And here in the West it can take the form, well, are all these secularized people, some of them very nice people, are, are they all wrong? Are they going to face judgment? That can be a very real temptation. We need to remember that minorities have often been right. Galileo was right when everyone else was wrong. Truth has often been held by one solitary individual when thinks of those magnificent words of the great Athanasius Athanasius contramundum Athanasius against the world thank God that he stood as he did as you go through the long history of the church you often find this don't you key people who are in a minority but they dig their heels in and they won't yield Martin Luther with a thousand years of the Babylonian captivity of the church behind him and, and he's got the might of the Roman church against him, but, but he knows the truth. He stands for that truth. How vital. How, how were they able to do it? God knows how to preserve and to rescue his people. More than that, not just preserve, but to rescue from the day of judgment. Noah and his family were saved. And that, of course, is true for God's people today. He's able to keep us. Peter, in his first letter, puts it like this. We are kept 
by the power of God for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here in the opening of this second letter, chapter 1 and verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. He keeps us. He holds us. He preserves us. The saints persevere to the end because God perseveres with the saints until the end and preserves us. But the darker side of that, of course, is that he can keep and knows how to keep the ungodly for the day of judgment. Verse 9 of chapter 2. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Stephen was referring this morning to the fact that the wiping out of the Canaanites and all the other judgments we read about in the Bible are in comparison with the flood. Mild. In comparison with the flood. Because at the time of the flood it was total. The entire race was wiped out. It really was an anticipation of the last day. The whole of humanity was divided into two categories and but two categories. Those in the ark who were saved and all who were outside of the ark were lost. So it will be at the final judgment. And this is a truth which is increasingly coming under attack. I'm just amazed at the interest which was expressed about 18 months, two years ago, was it now? By Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. How anybody reading these two chapters could take seriously that message. And ultimately, everybody will be in heaven. That beggar's belief. One of the attacks that's being made on the gospel these days is on the ethical teaching of the Old Testament, and in particular, the judgments of the Old Testament. The wiping out of the Canaanites. This is one of the things that Dawkins refers to in the God delusion. I know of people, I can think of someone now, the son of good friends of mine, raised in a Christian family, but he trolls through websites. Very intelligent young man, but he finds these things. And what do you make of this? What do you make of that? And it is crucial that God's people don't yield. And don't concede anything to the unbelieving world with respect to the judgments in the Old Testament because they, as Stephen was saying this morning, are mild when put in comparison with the flood and the flood is a paradigm for the final judgment. You can see what will happen, can't you? It's the domino theory. If God's people weaken on one aspect of the Old Testament, that will affect other things. And before long, there'll be a denial of the flood. And when that happens, there'll be a denial of the final judgment. And when there's a denial of the final judgment, that will inevitably have consequences for the doctrine of the atonement, of the cross, of repentance, and of human moral accountability. I was reading a very interesting book on holiday this year, um, The Age of Unbelief. And it was about how so much unbelief came in in the 19th century. What was interesting, this person had, had studied the history very, very carefully. And it was not things like Darwin's theory of evolution primarily. It was not the new geology. 
it was initially ethical concerns. Things in the Old Testament. There was a weakening. Well, look at the consequences of that in the 20th century. How liberalism just bit so deeply into the life of the churches. And as liberalism came in, the gospel went out. And when the gospel went out, the people went out. Because what has liberalism got to say? So we've got to be very, very careful there that we hold fast the integrity of the teaching of the Old as well as the New Testament. Humanity doesn't change. God doesn't change. But thirdly, the world will change. The world will change. Chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, 10 and 11. The words destroyed and dissolved keep coming up. Verse 6. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Now what does that mean? That everything is going to be destroyed. And here there's a, a difference. And it's a difference particularly amongst Lutheran theologians and Reformed theologians. A number of Lutheran Reformed theologians take this word destruction to mean annihilated. The present earth, present cosmos, is going to be obliterated by God. And he will then, as it were, create totally from new a new heaven and a new earth. Now the Reformed teaching is different. The Reformed teaching is this. The present cosmos, as presently constituted, will be destroyed, not by being obliterated, but by being changed. In that sense it's destroyed, but God will not create a new from nothing. He will take what's there, and he will so transform it that what we have now is destroyed. Something new comes in its place. There is discontinuity, it's destroyed. But there is continuity, because... It's this earth that is transformed. It's this present cosmos that will be transformed. Who's right? I was, in preparing for this uh, lecture, reading an old commentary by a man called Alexander Nisbet. And uh, I, I really woke up. I was a bit drowsy reading the commentary, but I woke up when I read these lines because he was writing a few hundred years ago and obviously in his day and age there was this difference and he said something like this, well now uh, this is something we shouldn't really be spending our time with. And uh, I was looking at the brief that asked me to spend time with this. <laughs> so uh, I thought uh, Alexander Nisbet isn't going to approve of this meeting tonight. But he did say something very, very important. He said the vital thing is that we will live in that new heaven and that new earth. Now at that point, of course, he's absolutely right. But I think he's wrong when he says we shouldn't be concerned with this because God has given us his word and it's our task to understand what his word says. And I think there are some important implications 
as to which way you answer this question. Let me give you the reasons for believing that the Reformed view is the right view. Romans 8 is a key chapter where Paul, speaking of the, the new world, has this to say. Verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. What's he saying there? He's saying that this earth has been cursed. But that's not the last word on this earth. God has subjected it to this judgment, to this curse, in hope that one day it's going to be liberated from its bondage to decay. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, but it's going to be this earth. It's going to be this cosmos that's going to be liberated from its bondage to decay. And then the resurrection of the human body is surely significant at this point. These bodies belong to this present order. But it is these bodies that will be resurrected. They are sown in dishonour, but what is sown in dishonour will be raised in glory. They are sown in weakness, but what is sown in weakness will be raised in power. There will be continuity between these bodies and our resurrection bodies. If that be so, then truly there will be continuity between this present earth and the new earth. And then in verse 13 of chapter 3, where Peter says we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. The Greek word is the word kainos, not the word neos. Anthony Hokima, who's a reformed writer who's written on the last things, draws attention to the significance of this word being used. Saying that it refers to something that is new in nature, new in quality, not new in origin or new in time. Then in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, we read of the restoration of all things. Something has gone wrong, but it's going to be restored. It's going to be transformed. Our Lord referred to at the renewal of all things, or at the regeneration of all things. Something that is regenerated means that what is there is made new. Well, that raises the interesting question. What will continue and what will be different? What are the points of continuity and what are the points of discontinuity? Now, if you were here this afternoon, you'll know that this has been a focus of uh, quite a sharp difference of opinion amongst some theologians. There are some people, or Brother Austin Roberts was referring to a man who uh, has taken the views of a man called Abraham Kuyper uh, and, and has pushed them perhaps to a ridiculous level that here is a mug, coffee mug. Well, this coffee mug is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. On the other hand, our brother Gary was uh, telling us of David Van Drumen and his views that really very little is going to continue on into the new age. So much of the life of the Christian is going to be destroyed. Only that which, if you can put it like this, is churchly or spiritual will be carried on 
into the new age. I want to try to refer to some verses that I think may throw some light upon this. I think what Paul says about the resurrection of the body is supremely important. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians and verse 35 following. But someone may ask, how were the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. So which things are going to carry on from this age on into the new age? Well, there's a sense in which we've got to be agnostic about that. There's going to be continuity, but we can't spell out with scientific precision the precise nature of that continuity. But it does seem to me, when you turn to the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, you get references to the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the bride, which is coming down from heaven, adorned for the marriage with the Lamb. But it's described with things that belong to this present order of things. The jasper, the sapphire, the chalcedony, the emerald, etc. There's a reference to uh, the, the tree of life, which is there for the healing of the nations. Now this is symbolic language, this is apocalyptic language. Nevertheless, it's taking things with which we may be familiar. It's taking things of this present order to refer to what will happen in the new heavens and in the new earth. Again, in chapter 21 and 26, we read that the glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. He doesn't say the glory and honour of the saints, but of the nations. There will be things that belong to life on earth which will carry on into the new age. But it's not spelled out in detail what those things will be. We know there will be singing in heaven. Singing is a cultural activity. But it's going to be a different order of things. So we've got to maintain a certain agnosticism. But it needs to be an agnosticism that allows for the fact that there will be strong points of continuity between the present order and the new order. And then this whole discussion concerning uh, the two kingdoms, and will it only be the, if I can put it in inverted commas, the most spiritual, churchly aspects of the life of the Christian, which will carry on into the next age? It seems to me there's a verse in Revelation which throws light on them, on, on this. Then I heard a voice which said, uh, write this, Blessed are those henceforth who die in the Lord for their works to follow them. Their works. What sort of works? Works done in obedience to the word of the Lord, those will follow them into the new age. It seems to me that that's got to be broader. That's a broader category than simply the Christian engaged in evangelism and churchly work. It's covering the whole of life. So let me draw to a close and seek to draw some practical lessons. What is the cash value? Uh, our brother Gary was referring to the fact that I, I have the privilege of lecturing systematic theology uh, alongside uh, Mostyn and Gary to the LTS students. One of the things I'm always concerned to drive at with them is this. What is the cash value of this doctrine? 
That is to say, how is this doctrine going to affect your life? I remember setting an essay once, and uh, I, I learned a lot from the essays that came back. The essay title was this, State Briefly, and I italicized the words briefly, the biblical, and I highlighted the word biblical, doctrine of the Trinity. Then I went on, and this is what I was really after, how should this doctrine influence worship, prayer, evangelism, and singing? I was nearly buried, you know. And there uh, essays that went on and on and on. It was all marvelous stuff about the Trinitarian controversies in the early church. I hadn't asked for anything of a historical nature. But I had lots and lots about the Trinitarian discussions in the early church and some verses thrown in. And then tagged on at the end, tagged on at the end, a few paragraphs concerning what I was really after. The point there, you see, is that you can have a doctrine of the Trinity, or any doctrine, like a mental checklist. Yeah, take it off. Yeah, believe that, believe that. What's its cash value? How will believing what the Bible says about the last things influence us? How should this influence us? Well, firstly, we are to live in the light of this new world. Chapter 3 Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, that is not obliterated, but it's going to be liberated, since everything will be liberated in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. It's the same teaching which the Apostle John gives, 1 John chapter 3. When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope within him purifies himself, even as he is pure. The doctrine of the last things is supremely relevant, supremely relevant to holiness of life. One of the dangers of systematic theology is that we can chop these doctrines up into discrete, isolated units, there's sanctification. There's justification. There's the person of Christ. There's the doctrine of the last things. But you see how the Bible brings them then together. We've got to do that conceptually in systematics, yes. But then the Bible takes those doctrines and says, ah, now the doctrine of the last things is to have an impact in the area of sanctification and holiness of life. So that's the first thing. If we go away from this conference, if we go away from this session tonight, Noah and the future, oh, that was interesting, or no, oh, that wasn't very interesting. And it doesn't affect how we live. This lecture has really been a waste of time. And certainly isn't true to the memory of the, the man uh, under whose name this lecture is given. Secondly, we're to speed. We're to speed the day of the coming of the Lord. Verse 12, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. It's an interesting verse, isn't it? How do you fit that into what you believe about the sovereignty of God? We must not bleed the force of certain passages away because they don't fit into our theological grid. I think the answer is given by verses 8 and 9. 
But do not forget this one thing, beloved. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, there's quite a bit of discussion amongst the commentators on this, but it does seem to me that those commentators are right who say that Peter is speaking primarily here of God's people. God's people who may have been influenced by this false teaching. God's people who are beginning to wobble. It has a secondary application to the world, yes. But the primary reference is to the people of God. And we speed the day of the Lord when we repent of things that are wrong in our lives. Because as we repent of things that are wrong in our lives, that helps the cause of evangelism. That brings people into the kingdom of God and the Lord is waiting to bring people into his kingdom. Again, our Lord taught us to pray, your kingdom come. We speed the day of his coming when we pray that. Really pray it in earnest. Your kingdom come. What does that mean? The kingdom has come with the coming of Jesus Christ. The kingdom is coming as the Spirit of God brings people to new birth and brings them into the kingdom of God. The kingdom is yet to come on the day of God. We speed his coming, the coming of the Lord, as we pray for his coming by the Spirit, bringing people into his kingdom. How do we square this with the sovereignty of God? Have you ever been asked... Uh, about a book that has influenced you. I can think of two books that have had an enormous influence upon my life and they bear no relationship to the size of the books themselves. I remember I'd been converted about six or seven months. This was back in the 1970s. And I went up to Cliff College in Derby to hear Arthur Blessett. Some of you will remember Arthur Blessett man who worked with hippies in uh, California. Now, I don't remember anything that Arthur Blessed preached that day. But I bought two books. One was a Scripture Union study book on Leviticus to Deuteronomy by an Old Testament scholar called Derek Kidner. I still go to that book in my daily readings when I read Leviticus to Deuteronomy. The other book was a little paperback by Jim Packer, Evangelism, and the sovereignty of God. I started to read it. It was a long journey from Derbyshire down to South Wales. I started it on the way back. I'd finished it by the time I got home. And my theological world had been revolutionised. And at the beginning of the book, Packer addresses this question. Now, how do we relate divine sovereignty to human responsibility? I think Stephen is a physicist, yes, yeah, so I'd better get this right. And the illustration Packer gives is this. It's like light. According to classical physics, light could either be a wave motion or it could be corpuscular, a stream of particles. According to classical physics, it couldn't be both. Towards the end of the 19th and early 20th century, enough data and evidence had stacked up to demonstrate that light behaves both as a wave motion and as a stream of particles. The both are true. The day of the Lord will come when God determines it. God is sovereign. And we mustn't yield on that one iota. Equally, equally, 
the church has a task to evangelize, to pray, to repent. Both are true. Parker quotes this wonderful question that was put to C.H. Spurgeon. How do you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility? I wouldn't try, Spurgeon replied. I never try to reconcile friends. <laughs> and Parker says, now that's the point. These truths are friends. And he goes to passage after passage where Jesus puts the two truths together. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Divine sovereignty. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Free invitation of the gospel. So we're to live in the light of this new world. We're to speed its coming. And finally we're to look forward to it. Verse 12. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. I'm going to make another confession here tonight. And, and this is a serious. So it may sound funny but it's not funny. I will have my 60th birthday next week. I can remember the day when I began to get troubled about my age. I used to laugh at people who made a big thing about, you know, when they're 40, when they're 50. But I can go back to 2004. My wife was doing Christianity Explained with a, a, a young lady who came to our toddlers and I said, well, let's meet the husband. So we had them round for me and we had them with one of our deacons and his wife who knew this couple and there we were at the table, I suddenly realised they're a different generation from me. A few days later, I became a grandfather. And that really uh, put the tin heart on it for me. Not long after that, not long after that, I went to the swimming pool one day, and the woman looked at me, and she said, uh, do you have concessionary tickets? <laughs> I said to her, no, I'm not a student any longer. And... Uh, but that really deflated me. And then I think the tin hat on it was coming up here, this was a few years later, on the tube, when a young lady, about 22, 23, offered me her seat. And at that point, I thought, I'm really decrepit. Well then, we may laugh at that. But it has really got to me. And my wife has said, what is wrong with him? You are getting nearer home. You should rejoice. And I should rejoice. But it has been a struggle. And it's only been within the last few weeks, preaching from the last verses of 1 Corinthians 3, that I've come out of it. All things are yours. The great text that is. All things, whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, whether the world or life or death, the present or the future, all things are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is of God. And I felt liberated. But now this is the point. I was not, I was not looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. We can become so tied up, can't we, with this present age. We can become so wedded to this present order that we're not looking forward to the world that's to come. I have three children. One of them lives here in London and she's married to a Frenchman. I have a middle one with three children and they live in Mallorca. He's married to an English woman. And I have my youngest, who's unmarried and lives in Rome. So it's quite international, isn't it? A uh, daughter married to a Frenchman. A Welshman married to an Englishwoman. And someone living in Rome. But now this is the point. My middle son moved last year to live in Mallorca. 
He'd only been there a few days, and he, he, he lived on an estate in Bridgend. Now, I don't know if you know Bridgend, but it's not that far from Swansea. And Swansea is either the wettest or the second wettest city in the United Kingdom. There used to be a theological college in Swansea, and the joke in the theological college was this, that if you looked out and uh, you couldn't see the land the other side, it meant it was raining. And if you could see the land the other side, it meant that the rain was on its way. <laughs> now then, Bridgend isn't far from Swansea. My son had only been in Mallorca for a few days. They lived literally, literally, a four-minute walk from the most wonderful beach and the most amazing marina. And he put this photograph up on Facebook and wrote underneath it, didn't realise that I would miss Bridgen so much. And my wife said to me, well, sir, I never... I said, he's joking, of course. Because for weeks, they were looking forward to going to Mallorca. And they were getting rid of things like duffel coats, and wellingtons, and umbrellas. They, they were beginning to live in the light of where they were going. They were looking forward to it. It was affecting their choices. It was affecting their purchases. And when they got there, they don't want to come back. And if we could be catapulted forward into the new heavens and the new earth, we wouldn't want to come back. We need to look forward to it. I think Charles Wesley captured that to perfection. In the great hymn we're going to sing in a few moments, Love divine, all love's excelling. Finish then, thy new creation. Pure and spotless may we be. Let us see thy great salvation, perfectly restored by thee, changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love and praise. Look forward. Look up. The coming of the Lord draws near. Have we lost something? I'm a millennial. My guess is, I may be wrong here, my guess is there are probably not many, if any, premillennialists here tonight. But those premillennialists of the 19th century, they had something, and it was this. They really believed in the coming of the Lord. That godly man, Andrew Boner, would get up and he would say, Lord, is it going to be today? Is it going to be today? Now, we may have our theories. All I'm getting at is those men were looking for the coming of the Lord. And whatever view we've got of the coming of the Lord, whether we're a-millennial, post-millennial, pre-millennial, surely we need to be looking forward and saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus. But before you come, Save the people. For his name's sake. Amen.